Welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Natalia Velez-Ryan. And I'm Veronica Penny. And today we're going to be talking about Fleabag. And as usual, spoilers abound, so watch it first. <laughs> yeah, if you don't want it to have the entire series ruined for you. And this is not a series that you want to have ruined. It's full of surprises. It is. There's definitely a lot to unpack in this one. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Yeah. Fleabag was created by, written by, and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and it was originally a stage production. And then it got picked up. They made the series for Amazon, um, the six episodes that are the first season, and people loved it. So they made a second season. So what were some of your general impressions of the show? What did you think? I have to say that for the first three episodes, there's only two seasons, both have six episodes each. And for the first three episodes of season one, so solidly one quarter of the season, I hated all of the characters. It's like, <laughs> why did we pick this show? These people are terrible. But as the characters build and as the plot deepens, there's just so much to this show. So many different lenses of through which it views modern society and like the role of women in like the home and the workplace and especially modern relationships. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. What did you think? I also didn't really like the characters when I started it. And I think the show kind of like tricks you a little bit at the start. Like it's like, oh, this is going to be about, you know, uh, Fleabag's sexual exploits or like how she makes really bad decisions and how she's like kind of a questionably maybe bad person. But like you said, there's just so much to it and it ends up being so much about like dealing with grief and like accepting that people are flawed, um, but that doesn't make them bad people. And what you said about it being a stage production is actually, it's a super helpful note because a lot of the times Phoebe Fleabag is looking at the camera and like looking at the audience. So we're going to put a pin in that and come back to it. Yeah, it definitely brings in some of those elements of theater and, like, public suffering that are really interesting. So this show, while maybe not explicitly, but just kind of in a show-don't-tell kind of way, has a lot to say about feminism. Yes. I think the episode that really gets into that the most, where you have these competing views of feminism that are kind of, like, they're succinctly summarized um, like these ideas that have been present throughout the whole series is in the second season, there's a best woman in business episode where it's all about this, like this award ceremony at Claire, who's Fleabag's sister. It's at her workplace to recognize the best woman in business. And we have three very differing views of feminism there. Yeah, maybe let's start with Claire because she's just such a fun, hilarious character. And we've known this throughout the show, but this like Fleabag really verbalizes this in this season when Claire is kind of walking her through the event and she's just saying like, oh, she's so stressed, um, which like generally we have like a negative connotation with it, but Claire thrives on being stressed. Like she loves being under pressure and having a lot of things to manage. And I think that that makes her a really interesting character. Uh, and she has that whole thing about like, do not comment on how big my office is. Um, <laughs> but she's a really successful woman. And she like, doesn't run away from like stressful situations, because that's kind of where she feels comfortable. And I agree, she has that. She has that aura of like a successful driven businesswoman. And you can tell, I mean, she's really defined through her work in a lot of ways, like Fleabag comments on how beautiful she is, and that she's like her perfect, successful older sister. But in all of this, you really get almost like this trope of just like the like dedicated 
my life is my work kind of a woman. And it's in very many ways, like, um, especially in American and Western society like that, uh, working hard and then like defining yourself through your success in your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to back up earlier in the season, we kind of learned that Claire is in a way like jealous of Fleabag. They're very different. And Fleabag is kind of like the fun sister or, you know, the sister who's always the center of attention. So we do know that she has these insecurities. It's not that she doesn't have that. Um, but just the workplace is not a place where she's insecure. She is not afraid to be super successful. Yeah. And with Fleabag, I think that her form of feminism, as you said, like she does have like this freedom and she is like an interesting and compelling character. And in the first season, I mean, she's a total train wreck and I can't really understand. I can't really wrap my head around like why you would be jealous of her, but Claire is married. She's in like this long-term relationship. She does have a stepson. And in many ways she's like, she's tied by the obligations of her marriage and by the obligations of her work. Whereas Fleabag, like her cafe is failing. She is pretty much just sleeping with everybody. Um, And she has that like real, like freedom of sexuality that I think like they're in many ways jealous of each other because they're like two halves of like differing views of success for women. There's like the sexual freedom and like feminism aspect. And then there's like the breaking the glass ceilings driven career aspect. Right. And I think that that points to um, the fact that this show is telling us or showing us that there is no one way to be a feminist. Um, There's that really funny moment in the very first episode, I believe, of the first season where their dad has bought them a ticket to this like feminist lecture because that's how he makes up for them um, not having a mother. Their mother seems to have died a couple of years before. And the woman, like this Brene Brown type woman who's giving the lecture comes out and says like, who would give up five years of your life for the so-called perfect body? And Fleabag and Claire are the only ones who raise their hands. And it's really funny, but it's like also points to the fact like they, she says like, oh, we're bad feminists, but there's no one way to be a feminist. Like you can be a feminist and also be interested in working out and having a nice body. Like, I don't know, like they're just constantly kind of saying like, you can't just define feminism in one way. I think that's interesting because, I mean, there's no way to answer this, but how would that have looked different if the question had been, would you give up five years of your life for like success in your career? And maybe the point is that you shouldn't give up five years of your life for anything, right? like any outward show of success. But I don't know. I think that that poses like an interesting question. And I think that like an interesting third perspective on all of this is actually if we're going to go back to that awards episode, it comes from Belinda, who actually is awarded the Best Woman in Business Award. And Belinda and Fleabag have this this like long exchange at the bar where they're talking about women in business awards. And Belinda basically says, you know, like these awards are infantilizing. Mm-hmm. It should just be like, like, why does it have to be the best women in business? This is like the child's table version of success in the business world. And Belinda, she kind of has like all these views on sexuality and she's post-menopause and she talks about how menopause is like terrible, but then in the end, you're free because you're just a person. You're not like a woman anymore and you're not chained to these ideas of sexuality and it doesn't like govern your life in that kind of a way. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that entire speech? I have two opinions on it. So there's kind of the first half of the speech that you mentioned where she's talking about how women in business awards are infantilizing um, and it's othering. And I looked to kind of some of the 
OG um, feminist theorists to kind of get a, a basis for this argument. So I was reading up on Simone de Beauvoir, who makes this argument that since the Bronze Age, essentially, humanity has been defined by the ideologies of men, and this positions women as whether they are being protected or worshipped, they are inferior to men, like they are other than men. Uh, So if I may read you a quote from her, she says of woman, she is defined and differentiated with reference to man and not he with reference to her. She is the incidental, the inessential, as opposed to the essential. He is the subject, he is the absolute, and she is the other. Um, So I think that part of her argument by saying, like, this is the children's table of awards is saying that, like, instead of nominating women for the business person of the year, they're making a a different award for women because women are other for men. That's a really interesting quote, and it actually dovetails with some research that I found in my hunting for philosophy to go with this episode. I found a piece by Julie Barabitsky. Um, She's a professor of history and women's and gender studies Mm -hmm. at the University of California, Davis. And she did this review of um, Helen Gurley Brown's work. And she kind of has a different interpretation of Helen Gurley Brown's work than a lot of other historians and kind of like writers who came after Brown. So her view, if I may read you a quote, is that This has to do with sexuality in the workplace. And Helen Gurley Brown makes this case that women shouldn't suppress their sexuality in the workplace because men don't suppress their sexuality in the workplace. And that women could even use it to their advantage to get a higher position in their career and kind of break out of that pink collar workforce of very historically like women centric positions like a secretary or a stenographer. So this is what um, Barabitsky has to say about the work of Helen Gurley Brown. In dismissing or downplaying Brown's assertions, a variety of dominant culture groups, middle-class wives, executives, authors, journalists, and office ladies, create what we might think of as a willful and learned ignorance that denied the reality of sexual expression in the office. Such denials meant that working women bore the sole responsibility for controlling expressions of sexuality in the office, just as all women at the time were expected to regulate sexuality during courtship. And then she continues, by outing workplace sexuality then, Brown hoped to give individual women a measure of the power that men derived from being sexual agents in the office. So I think that if you combine de Beauvier and Helen Gurley Brown, it like starts to paint this picture of kind of like the struggle of women to be on an equal playing field as men in the office because of that dynamic of sexuality within the workplace and because of like that historical sort of like representation of women as being like particularly distinct from men. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because like it makes a great point that if women want to be equal with men in the workplace, like they often kind of have to almost remove some traits of their femininity, like wear a pantsuit or, you know, like don't wear something that is overtly flattering of your womanly figure. So that's not equal. That's just um, kind of taking on masculinity as a way to be more equal in the workplace. Brown is sort of following up on this um, idea that was originated by Elizabeth Gregg McGibbon and an excerpt from McGibbon from Matters in Business, which was written in 1936, said that 
Everywhere under the seemingly placid surface of business, there's an undercurrent of sex, upsetting, repelling, attracting individuals. But the day's work must be done. So in most businesses, any outward manifestation of attraction between the sexes is frowned upon by the management, and the dynamic is kept in the cellar, so to speak. So here you have like the idea of suppression of sex in the workplace, which then sort of progresses to this idea of like women, quote unquote, raising the temperature, but not raising eyebrows through the way that they dress. Mm -hmm. And then that like third sort of iteration is women embracing their sexuality and being on a even playing field with men. And I feel like you, I don't know, like you sort of see different representations of that in Fleabag as well, because you have Claire who like she dresses sharp, but not overtly sexually. Mm -hmm. Like her dresses are below knee length and it's fairly conservative, but she still looks very polished and like a businesswoman. And then you have like Fleabag who dresses given she's not in like a white collar office, but she, she wears like short dresses and stocking. That amazing jumpsuit. <laughs> that amazing jumpsuit that's just like pretty much cut. There's just like a cutout all the way from her neck to like her navel. And I think Belinda even, uh, I'm trying to remember the word that Belinda uses when she sees Claire, because she does say like, God, you're sharp or God, you're, she says something about her outfit. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a really great. Point. I want to say she says chic because people keep saying that about Claire, which is like in the show is a synonym for boring, which is also pretty interesting. Yes. So that's kind of one aspect of the speech. The second part of it where she talks about menopause and it being really liberating, like was a cool moment. Like a lot of people were like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And it was like a powerful speech. It was surprising when she kind of starts building up to menopause and then she says like, it is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) But there has also been a little bit of backlash against that part of the speech in the sense that, um, by defining being a woman by having a uterus, it's kind of, well, A, it's like alienating women who might not have a uterus, um, whether that's trans women or women who have had a hysterectomy. Like it just, by defining womanhood by biology, it kind of ends up excluding some women. And it just kind of like backtracks on that point of being other from men because you are kind of in a way saying we are other by this like biological feature. That it's we interesting have. because it also echoes a lot of historical perspective on women as women being distinct from men because they could give life. And I cannot remember which mm-hmm. philosopher it was, so I'm not even going to throw out any names or guesses here. But there was this entire theory of sort of a, in like a weird Oedipus complex tangential way men are jealous of women because women can bear and produce life but that also like what you're saying defines a woman by her ability to produce child and if for whatever reason a woman is unable to do that or if she's post-menopause then what does it mean to be a woman and I think that's actually like a big issue that western society really grapples with Yeah, and it just, like, really reinforces binaries, Um, so this binary of man and woman, and the basis of a lot of feminist work being in post-structuralist theory is seeking to break down binaries and to not say, like, we can't, like, we can define what womanhood is beyond saying it's opposed to manhood. I mean, I think that it's still totally fair that Belinda gives that speech, like, that is how she feels, and that is her experience, and I think that Fleabag is giving us a lot of different experiences of what it means to be a woman, but it's just worth considering. Yeah, I think that Fleabag, in a way, acts as sort of, like, 
a vehicle that transports us between those two binaries of male and woman or male and female. And I think one of the really interesting places where she physically connects those two binaries is during the retreat episode. Yes, this is such a great episode. Just to set it up, Claire and Fleabag go on this feminist retreat and they get in there and it's basically a silent retreat. And the director of the retreat sets this up as being like a place where you, it's very much like making fun of like the mainstream yoga culture Mm -hmm. and like meditation and things like that. But basically the goal is to create a thought prison (laughs) during the silent retreat where you are alone with your thoughts. And just to point out the retreat is called women don't speak. Yes. And of course, like Fleabag and Claire are from the beginning, like not following the silent rule at all. (laughs) Is this a retreat that their father purchases for them? Right. This is one of those things that their father sends them to because he feels bad that they don't have a mother figure in their life and he doesn't really know how to talk to them. Yes. So just to like fully set up the scene here, really early on in the episode, uh, Fleabag hears this yelling coming from outside and she goes to investigate it and there's a becoming a better man retreat am i getting the name right Uh, i think it's better men the better better men retreat so in contrast to this women are silent retreat the all these men are screaming like horrible profanities at i think they are blow up sex dolls (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure her name is patricia and she represents the woman in the workplace Yes, and there are all these white-collar professional working men who are just screaming, like, all of the horrid things at these women, like, all of these, like, misogynistic, like, awful statements about, like, women being bitches and sluts and all of these things. And there's that great moment where they're passing Patricia around and kind of the, the, one of the hosts or, I don't know, one of the counselors at the retreats is saying, like, oh, Patricia just got a promotion. She is one, like, many people applied and she got it because she is the most qualified. What would you like to say to Patricia? And all the things they have to say to her are extremely derogatory and insulting. And then after they get that all, all out of their system, he says, okay, what should you say to Patricia? And one of the guys ventures, like, a well done, Patricia. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> and it's so funny. But anyway, one of the people that uh, is in the retreat, Fleabag recognizes him to backtrack a little bit. From the first episode, he was the um, bank manager who denies her the loan for her cafe. And he kind of at the beginning when she gets there is like telling her that their firm has been through some sort of sexual harassment case. And there's this kind of moment where she's trying to take her sweater off and realizes she doesn't have a shirt on and puts her sweater back down. And he just kind of kicks her out of there, tells her, like, look, this I'm not interested in another sexual harassment situation. So he is at this retreat trying to become a better man. So my thoughts on the retreat, especially on the second watch of the series, um, like you mentioned, like they're making fun of this retreat culture. And what's really funny is that, like, there's this retreat for women and this retreat for men, and they're all trying to, like, become better, or what is it that Fleabag says she wants to get out of the retreat? It's such a great line. She said that... Hang on, I'm going to pull it up. Yeah, you texted it. I texted it to you. (laughs) Okay, I found it. So she says, I want to shut the noise out and reconnect to my inner thoughts on the road to feeling more at one with myself. (laughs) Which, and she just makes it up on the spot and yeah. then looks at her sister and they're both trying not to laugh, but it's exactly what the director of the retreat wanted to hear. Exactly. So yeah, there's just this sense that like 
these two retreats, like instead of breaking down any of these binaries that we've been talking about, all it does is reinforce them. All it does is tell women, you need to be silent and scrub these floors. And then it's telling men like, oh, to become a better man, you need to scream all the horrible things that come to your head when you see a woman. So it's just like really making fun of this culture of like, oh, I I am trying to be better. But at the same time, like all that is doing is reinforcing the existing stereotypes. It's interesting because I actually pulled up a survey um, run by the Pew Research Center mm-hmm. and I could not in their survey find the sample size that they were working on. So we'll take all this with a grain of salt. But it was people being surveyed on which traits or characteristics they think people in our society value most in men and women. So this isn't the people trying to like talk about their how they feel about what people value in men and women. It's how they think other people in American society value men and women. Okay. And what the results came back as is overwhelmingly the characteristic that is most valued in women or that we perceive society to most value in women is physical attractiveness. So you could only pick one thing. So that got 35% of the votes. And then just below that is empathy, nurturing, and kindness. And then for men, it was very much focused on professional success and like honesty, which sort of doesn't quite fit into this whole thing. But about a quarter of people say that professional success and financial success is what defines men. And we see that here in like these white collar men. So like the men are being valued sort of on their successfulness and not really on how they treat other people. Mm -hmm. And the women are, it's very 1950s idea of like women being valued on like their attractiveness and just like finding pleasure in menial tasks, which is something they do in this retreat by cutting grass with a pair of scissors and just kind of staying silent. Yeah. And even though the retreats end up being absolutely useless because they are just reinforcing those stereotypes that society already values, what seems to be the actually healing moment is when Fleabag and the bank manager have a conversation. And this is the only time kind of that Fleabag actually follows that silence rule and lets him just kind of talk about why he's there and what he's trying to get out of it. And it's a really sad scene. Like you get this picture of this broken man who like all these things that he's saying are like, I just want to go home and like clean, like scrub mugs and like do the dishes and then serve my wife coffee in that mug the next morning. And like, I just want to make her happy. And you get the sense of this man who's really seeking redemption and his like is flawed and has messed up, but he's trying to kind of claw his way back to just like this life that he had that he took for granted. Yeah, and like that really striking thing that he says is that I'm just a very disappointing man. Um, And it's interesting to think about like, does he mean disappointing because he doesn't feel that he lives up to these societal standards of what it is to be a man? Or maybe because he has been living up to that and by doing that has been neglecting his actual priorities, which seem to be his family. So yeah, that is an extremely sad moment. And at the end, all that Fleabag Fleabag says is, I just want to cry all the time. (laughs) Yes. And then the bank manager makes like a very small zipping motion against like across (laughs) his mouth to indicate that she is on her silent retreat and should be honoring that. Right. But yeah, like he's just such an interesting character because he is like, he's clearly this man who has been me too'd and we want to just immediately judge him and be like, he's a bad dude. But really what the show keeps telling us is that people make mistakes, but he is trying to be better and that is worth something. 
And one of the things that he does as part of that trying to be better is that later on he goes to visit Fleabag's cafe and try to help her out with the loan. And there's this kind of reversal where now it's her saying all the things that she hasn't been able to say, and he's just quietly listening to her. Yeah, she really goes on this rant about how she feels like a failure, and she feels that she's not successful, and he listens quietly and then leaves, and she's left there in this very broken, sad scene. But he comes back moments later with an application, which is how we begin the entire two-season series. It starts um, really with her in his office trying to get a loan for her cafe, and he comes back with this paperwork from the bank, and he says, you know, let's start over, which is very much, as you mentioned, like a theme throughout this um, throughout this two-season series. It's uh, like this idea of redemption and that people make mistakes, but that if you give them a chance and you give them the opportunity to rectify it, they can make up for that. And they redo like exactly their first interview. So instead of Fleabag like taking off her shirt and accidentally catching up her undershirt and flashing this guy, um, and instead of him laughing which is at a joke which is like misconstrued by Fleabag as him being derogatory toward her, they have like this kind of beautiful moment where you know, he says, like, so I, I see you run a cafe for hamsters. And it's really a hamster-themed cafe. Yeah, and or guinea pigs. <laughs> I'm sorry, guinea pigs. It is definitely guinea pigs. Um, he does give her a hamster later on, though, so. He does, yes. <laughs> so, and she laughs at this joke this time along with him instead of feeling like she's laughed at. Mm-hmm. And it's just this idea of, like, these two people starting over. And, like, I think it's just such a powerful moment because it is, like, if you could go back in time and actually start that scene over, like how different this all would have shaken out. And it also shows the growth between the two characters in so many ways, all of the different decisions they made that lead them back to that moment where they do have an opportunity to start over with each other. And there's that room for forgiveness. It's, it's really powerful. It is. And then we start season two with her cafe being really successful. And what's interesting is that in that, speech that she gives to the bank manager one of the things she says is that like either everybody feels like this all the time or I'm just like absolutely alone and when she realizes that she kind of makes up this chatty Wednesdays um, theme at her cafe because she realizes that she's not alone a lot of people feel lonely and that's why the cafe starts to thrive when she invites lonely people to come in on Wednesdays and chat with each other. Yeah, and I think that that also just goes back to, like, there's this theme that's introduced in season two of just feeling lost and, like, wanting somebody to tell you what to do and can take take control of your life for you. And I think that that sort of echoes this idea that there aren't, there's no one way to be a good feminist because they're, it's all a sliding scale. Like, there's no black and white or good and bad. There are no binaries. It's all broken down. And everyone's really just struggling to find meaning in that and, like, what they should be doing with their lives within that sliding scale. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So another of the main um, kind of plot lines of season two is that uh, Fleabag meets this priest who's going to be marrying her dad and godmother. And he's an interesting character. Like he's, you know, right away cursing and drinking a bunch and kind of not your general idea of what a priest um, would be. And in the show, he's just called the priest, but um, on the internet, people call him hot priest. (laughs) (laughs) And they fall in love with each other. 
So it's giving us this really interesting dynamic throughout the series because in a way, Fleabag is seeking, like she's coming to this Catholic church, even though she says like, I don't believe in God. So in a way, it's like she's looking for solace somewhere and it's kind of in religion and it's kind of in this relationship with the hot priest and he's kind of in love with her too. And it's really interesting to see them trying to navigate this like idea of I've found someone who like understands me, but we definitely cannot be together. Yeah, and it's interesting too because very much in the first part of the series, Fleabag defines her self worth as her ability to like seduce men and just have sex with whoever she wants. And she has this really striking line that's basically like, My worth is tied to my body as it is now. And once my body begins to deteriorate, then what will I have left? Like, I will be nothing. So she's really using like sex to define her own success. And then with this priest, you suddenly have a relationship where they can't have sex with each other and her struggling to navigate like what that could mean and what that could be like. And it's interesting because at the beginning of season two, we, sh- we see that she's been trying because season one is really her dealing with the grief of having lost Boo, which we haven't really talked about, but um. And then season two, like, it starts with her saying, like, look, I've been doing squats and I've been eating healthy and I've been saying no to sex. That's not going to mean anything or bring anything to my life. And so it is interesting that she falls in love with this priest knowing that they can't um, have sex and she has been trying to avoid it. There is an interesting power dynamic because, as you said, like, she's kind of been doing all of these things to try to be better but all she wants and she says it in that confession scene is that some is someone to tell her what to do and he's that kind of figure yes and i think that this is a good place to talk about nameless characters in the season because a lot of the characters don't have names like her father is just like dad or darling and then even her godmother goes to introduce him at the wedding scene and she's like oh um what's your name i always just call you darling and then she's like well here's the love of my life so and she just like a moment to say that she is so funny she's out of the godmother like (laughs) she is so passive aggressive olivia coleman who plays the godmother is just hilarious i just had to put it out there it's great i hate her but she's very good comic relief yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we have all these nameless characters and we have, it's an interesting play between, like, it's very heavy handed and overt, but Fleabag will say like, like in one scene she's leaving and she says, father, and then she turns to the priest and says, father, as she's <laughs> taking her leave. And I, yeah, I think there's just, you know, like she's always trying to reconcile her relationship with her own dad, who's like trying to send her and her sister to all these different like feminist events to make up for the fact they don't have their mother. And then in the same way, she's like, there is this interesting power dynamic with her and the priest because he's like the only man that she sleeps with in the episodes where, you know, he's in one scene, he's drunk and she walks in the door and he says, stop, stay right there. And she actually complies. And I think that's the only man throughout the series Except for her father, who, like, asks her to leave in several points, and she wordlessly leaves. But those are the only two that she actually listens to and in some ways obeys. Um, And I think it is part of, like, that just, like, having someone telling her what to do. And in some small way, in in her whirlwind life, like, she takes a little bit of comfort in that. Yeah, and I think it's not just because she's, like, trying to be submissive or whatever, but because she just, like, feels so lost sometimes that she just wants the guidance. And there is a really sweet moment with her dad, uh, the last episode of season two, 
where he kind of does tell her, like, why it is that she's always in so much pain. And, you know, he kind of tells her, like, you just know how to love better than any of us. And that's why it's so painful for you. And I think that that is kind of like an epiphany for her, even though at that moment she says, like, no, it's not. It's not painful for me. She does end up realizing, like, oh, yeah, I do just, like, feel a lot, and I just have a lot of love to give. And we see that earlier in the season in the flashbacks to when her mother died, and she's kind of saying, like, I don't know where to put all this love that I had for her. So she all she kind of ever wanted from her dad was to, like, have that real connection with him, and that it's really sweet when that happens, and he does tell her, like, look, I do see you for who you are, like, under all these things that you do, it's just because you love so much. Um, but back to the names, like, why do you think that so many characters, especially the main character, Fleabag, who, like, nobody calls her Fleabag, but that's just how we know her. Why no name for her? I mean, the most obvious reading of this is that she's supposed to be mutable so that she could be many different people and that she's standing for what she represents and not who she is as a character. So you're not meant to identify these things with like Megan or Elizabeth or whatever her name might be. You're meant to identify these ideas with like different concepts of what could be and different ways that people like manifest themselves um, and different ways that feminism manifests itself like in society. Yeah. And there's this New York Times article. It was the review of the show by James Poniewozik, um, <laughs> who um, who does talk about the idea of no names and, you know, the priest and dad. Um, and what he says is, Relatively few characters in the series get proper names. Instead, they're identified by their stations in the protagonist's life, as if this were a medieval morality play or a morality play. So that's an interesting way to think about it, is that there are there are archetypes instead of characters, as you were saying, so that we can kind of put ourselves or other people into them. I'd agree. And, you know, Fleabag does have... She's not a completely flat character. She does progress and evolve somewhat. Her and Claire are the two that really come to mind as like progressing and moving. But most of the characters yeah. are really like flat characters and stereotypes or archetypes. Yeah. Although it is interesting that even um, Martin, Claire's husband, who is just the worst, Ugh. just a horrible person. But even he gets a moment like at the end of season two where he says like, look, I just have a bad personality. <laughs> like, it's not my fault. Some people are just born this way, which like in a way is like, well, you could try to be better. Yes. But he like even he has a moment where you see him like being sad and like actually having feelings. So everyone does get like a chance to prove that they are not always horrible. Um, whether they take that chance or not is kind of up to them. Um, So another kind of main thing with the series is the looking at the audience which we mentioned at the beginning and should probably come back to now yeah so when I watched the series I noticed that in the flashbacks Fleabag never looks at the camera so anytime we go to the past when Boo is still alive her best friend who died or if she's like reliving any kind of scene that happened like before the main time frame she actually doesn't look at the camera address it at all and really her looks at the camera are like me trying to get through a business meeting without making a snarky face at somebody like they're a commentary on what's happening in that moment in time and it's really like the way that I read it was that Fleabag is pulling herself out of a situation to put distance there and it's really interesting because none of the characters notice these asides it's very much like um I don't know what do you call it in plays 
breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, it is breaking the fourth wall. But there is one character who does notice her doing that. And it's like very jarring as a viewer because um, it's the priest. And anytime that Fleabag looks at the camera and breaks that fourth wall, the priest follows her gaze and says, where did you go? Like, what just Mm -hmm. happened here? I love that. Like, that is such a jarring moment. He sees her, you know, like he really sees her and he's really trying to understand her. And so he notices when she's um, dissociating, separating herself from those difficult moments. Because a lot of times it happens when she's about to cry or something is going to happen. And so she needs to like make a snarky joke at the camera to separate herself from that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like what you said, like he just is the character that really sees her and they have a real connection. And it's interesting that he's like unattainable to her because he is a priest and they like can't have this relationship the way that they both would like to. So in the end of the series, you know, like they end up going their separate ways and they're at a bus stop and he walks and leaves and then Fleabag realizes that the bus isn't coming to get her home and she walks in the other direction And the camera follows her and she just shakes her head really gently, no, and just like walks out of the scene. And the way that I read that was like this whole series, there's been this, you know, her mother died and then Boo sort of replaced her mother in her life as being the person that she cared most about where she poured her love. And she's really been dealing with like this, this thing that we don't really see till the end of the second season, which is that she feels partly responsible for Boo's death because we find out that Fleabag slept with Boo's boyfriend and Boo loved her boyfriend and when she finds out that her boyfriend slept with somebody else, even though I don't know that she knows that it's Fleabag, she decides to step in front of a bike lane to get hurt and end up in the hospital with like an injured finger and instead she dies. It's an accidental death. And Fleabag really feels responsible for that. And she comes to terms like we see all of that come to get like together in the end of the second season. And I think it's that moment when she comes to terms with that where she's not in denial anymore, where she's not shaking her head every time there's one of those flashbacks so that she doesn't finish the thought process. Like right. that's when she tells the camera to stop following her. Yeah. And Phoebe Waller Bridge is an amazing actress. Like that little shake of the head is just like so meaningful and I don't know, just like so full of emotion. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. Is like she is finally accepting like I'm going to let myself feel these emotions. I'm going to let myself feel sad that the priest and I can't be together. But she puts her feelings out there. She, she tells him, I love you. And he is going to reply. And she's like, no, let's just let that hang there for a moment. Yeah. So I feel like that's her growth of like allowing herself to be inside of her emotions, even if they're bad, because she knows that she just can't keep dissociating anymore. Sorry, what were you going to say? It's interesting because throughout the series, um, there are all these scenes of Fleabag having sex with people. And like during sex, she's commenting to the camera on how the sex is. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, like sort of the precursor to all this is when she actually does have sex with the priest, spoiler alert, um, the camera is watching her. And we always think of this camera as this thing that's removed from the like scene but Fleabag like hits the top of the camera and tilts it down so that we can't see her and the priest having sex. And that's like the yeah. first real interaction with the camera. And then from there, I think that's sort of like beginning her progression towards stepping away from that camera and kind of stopping removing herself from these situations and really addressing what's happening in that moment. Yeah, so I feel like just it ends on such a hopeful note of like, I mean, yeah, it sucks and she's sad right now, but she's gonna be okay like she's doing the work of trying to feel her guilt so that she can get through it because as long as she keeps avoiding it she's never going to be able to get past it 
I agree. And I really liked that the series felt very closed within this chapter of her life where there is this camera and that she's able to like walk into our view and walk about back out of it. And we just see like this perfect, not really enclosed portion of this person's life. It's really beautiful. It really is. And I just love a series that just like ends where it needs to end. And that's it. instead of like <laughs> ending with a happily ever after or something like that. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, we won't have time to talk about it, but that I do really love about the second season, especially is like at that first episode, um, which is like utter chaos and ends with her like bleeding out of her nose. She says, this is a love story. And sure, it's a love story between her and the priest, but it's also a love story between her and her sister. They've had such a strained relationship, and we see them, like, really come together in this season, and there's just, like, that beautiful moment in the wedding episode where Fleabag is telling Claire to go after Claire, (laughs) um, the man from Finland that she loves, and she's like, go run through the airport, and Claire tells her, like, no, the only person I would run through the airport for is you. And I just, like, I just loved that moment. It was a beautiful moment. Claire does end up running through the airport after Claire. Yeah. Um, there's a lot we could talk about with the fact that they have the same name, but I think we're going to have to leave it in the interest of time. <laughs> Agreed. Um, shall we wrap up with some recommendations? Yes. What do you have? So this might only be of interest to a very small audience, but I've been watching this series on Netflix called Bolivar. And it's about the life of Simón Bolívar, who liberated many South American countries from Spanish rule. Um, He's kind of like our George Washington. And this is like a sprawling 60-episode historical drama about his life. And I'm like maybe a quarter of the way through it. But I I read a review of it. And I guess I don't need to throw shade at this review. (laughs) Um, That's not what this is about. But it just kind of calls it an irredeemable melodrama which it is fair to call it a melodrama but I think that we have to understand that this series which was made in Colombia is coming from a tradition of telenovelas which is how we tell stories in South American television it's really like one of our main genres and like yes there's this kind of idea of like oh, it's just soap operas and they're just like full of melodrama. Um, But at the same time, there are amazing telenovelas that have come out of Colombia, especially that have been adapted to American television, like Ugly Betty comes to mind. So I don't think it's worth dismissing it as a genre. And I don't know, as a series, it has just meant a lot to me and my family to have this to talk about, like this series about an important figure in Venezuelan history and in South American history in general. So it is kind of cheesy at times, and it is kind of melodramatic, but it also has allowed us to kind of just like talk about our history, especially at a time when a lot of Venezuelans are living outside of Venezuela. It's cool to have this like connection back to our home, and so it's cool to see stories like that on Netflix. Um, It was written mainly by Juana Uribe. And if you're out there and you're like, I want to learn about the life of Bolivar, or I want to try to remember all this stuff that I forgot from history class in school, um, it's a cool, interesting series. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely want to check it out, especially because, as you may know, although you did not go to junior high and high school here, in the United States, we do not do a great job of covering Latin American history. So all of this is brand new and fresh to me. 
Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say that it's completely historical, but they do cover some really important parts of, like, this campaign that he led where they crossed the Andes and it was, like, grueling, but it, like, helped them win this battle. So you do get some history from it. You also get a lot of, like, forbidden romance, but, you know, it's still an interesting watch. Very cool. How about you? Mine is much shorter than 60 episodes. I found a story that I really like. It came to me in Lily Lines, which is a feminist newsletter published by the Washington Post. And in the most recent edition, um, there's this article by Reina Gattuso. It's uh, just titled, Lesbian Bars Are Disappearing. We spent a night at one that's still standing. And it's really in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which was at the end of last month, at the end of June. And it's this beautiful piece about how there are really no lesbian bars. Well, there are very few lesbian bars left in New York, and it sort of explore, explores the reason why. But it also explores like what the bar means to people. And there's this quote from... Uh, one of the bartenders, I believe, um, it says, I hear all the time from customers when they come in, they just breathe an air of relief, says Victoria, a bartender and go-go dancer. And it just talks about how this bar is like a safe space for women, especially queer women in a society where oftentimes like, this is my reading of the article, by the way, but oftentimes mm-hmm. if you go to a bar as a woman, you're subject to like just unwanted attention from men or being grabbed and just to like have this safe space for these women where they don't have to deal with men and the whole like sometimes infatuation that men have with like two women being seen together in public um it's really beautiful and it's a pretty short read and I definitely recommend it it's a nice perspective that's great I will definitely be looking that up yeah All right. So thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you. And just to give everyone a heads up, our next episode will be covering Big Little Lies, which is currently releasing weekly episodes. Yes. So rewatch the first season and watch the new season and come back in the beginning of August to talk about it. Oh, and follow us on Instagram at Madeline Looks Back. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is by Michael Ryan. The critics and scholars who we discussed today were Simone de Beauvoir, Julie Barabitsky, Helen Gurley-Brown, James Poniewozik, and the Pew Report we discussed was published by Kim Parker, Juliana Menasche-Horowitz, and Renee Stepler. Apologies to any and all whose names we butchered. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.